Chapter forty eight of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter forty eight The Flight of Sykes. Of all bad deeds that under the cover of darkness had been committed within London's wide bounds since night hung over it, that was the worst. Of all the horrors that rose with an ill scent upon the morning air, that was the foulest and most cruel. The sun, the bright sun that brings back not light alone, but new life and hope and freshness to man, burst upon the crowded city in clear and radiant glory. Through costly coloured glass and paper-mended window, through cathedral dome and rotten crevice, it shed its equal ray. It lighted up the room where the murdered woman lay. It did. He tried to shut it out, but it would stream in. If the sight had been a ghastly one in the dull morning, what was it now in that brilliant light? He had not moved. He had been afraid to stir. There had been a moan and a motion of the hand, and with a terror added to rage, he had struck and struck again. Once he threw a rug over it, but it was worse to fancy the eyes and imagine them moving towards him than to see them glaring upward, as if watching the reflection of the pool of gore that quivered and danced in the sunlight on the ceiling. He had plucked it off again, and there was the body, mere flesh and blood no more, but such flesh and so much blood. He struck a light, kindled a fire, and thrust the club into it. There was hair upon the end which blazed and shrunk into a light cinder, and caught by the air whirled up the chimney. Even that frightened him, sturdy as he was, but he held the weapon till it broke, and then piled it on the coals to burn away and smoulder to ashes. He washed himself and rubbed his clothes. There were spots that would not be removed. But he cut the pieces out and burnt them. How those stains were dispersed about the room. The very feet of the dog were bloody. All this time he had never once turned his back upon the corpse. No, not for a moment. Such preparations completed, he moved backward towards the door, dragging the dog with him lest he should soil his feet anew and carry out new evidence of the crime into the streets. He shut the door softly, locked it, took the key, and left the house. He crossed over and glanced up at the window to be sure that nothing was visible from the outside. There was the curtain still drawn, which she would have opened to admit the light she never saw again. It lay nearly under there. He knew that. God, how the sun poured down upon the very spot. The glance was instantaneous. It was a relief to have got free of the room. He whistled on the dog and walked rapidly away. He went through Islington, strode up the hill at Highgate, on which stands the stone in honour of Whittington, turned down to Highgate Hill, unsteady of purpose, and uncertain where to go, struck off to the right again, almost as soon as he began to descend it, and taking the footpath across the fields, skirted Cayon Wood, and so came on Hampstead Heath. Traversing the hollow by the Vale of Heath, he mounted the opposite bank, and crossing the road which joins the villages of Hampstead and Highgate, made along the remaining portion of the heath to the fields at North End, in one of which he laid himself down under a hedge and slept. Soon he was up again and away, not far into the country, but back towards London by the high road, then back again, and over another part of the same ground as he had already traversed 
and then wandering up and down in fields and lying on ditches brinks to rest that was a good place not far off and out of most people's way thither he directed his steps running sometimes and sometimes with a strange perversity loitering at the snail's pace or stopping altogether and idly breaking the hedges with the stick but when he got there all the people he met the very children at the doors seemed to view him with suspicion back he turned again without the courage to purchase bit or drop though he had tasted no food for many hours and once more he lingered on the heath uncertain where to go he wandered over miles and miles of ground still came back to the old place morning and noon had passed and the day was on the wane and still he rambled to and fro up and down and round and round and still lingered about the same spot at last he got away and shaped his course for hatfield it was nine o'clock at night when the man quite tired out and the dog limping and lame from the unaccustomed exercise turned down the hill by the church of a quiet village and plodding along the little street crept into a small public house whose scanty light had guided them to the spot there was a fire in the tap room and some country labourers were drinking before it they made room for the stranger but he sat down in the furthest corner and ate and drank alone or rather with his dog to whom he cast a morsel of food from time to time the conversation of the men assembled here turned upon the neighbouring land and farmers when those topics were exhausted upon the age of some old man who had been buried in the previous sunday the young men present considering him very old and the old men present declaring him to have been quite young not older one white-haired grandfather said that he was within ten or fifteen years of life left in him at least if he had taken care if he had taken care there was nothing to attract attention or excite alarm in this the robber after paying his reckoning sat silent and unnoticed in his corner and had almost dropped asleep when he was half awakened by the noisy entrance of a newcomer this was an antic fellow half peddler half mountebank who travelled about the country on foot to vend homes strops razors washballs medicine for dogs and horses cheap perfumery cosmetic and such-like wares which he carried in a case slung to his back his entrance was the signal for various homely jokes with the countryman which slackened not until he had made his supper and opened his box of treasures which he ingeniously contrived to unite business with amusement and what be that stuff good to eat harry asked a grinning countryman pointing to some composition cakes in one corner this said the fellow producing one this is the invaluable invaluable composition for removing all sorts of stain rust dirt mildew stick speck spot or spatter from silk satin linen cambric cloth crepe stuff carpet merino muslin bombazine or woollen stuff wine stains fruit stains beer stains water stains paint stains pitch stains any stains all come out at one rub with the infallible and invaluable composition the lady stays her honour she's only need to swallow one cake and she's cured at once for it's poison if a gentleman wants to prove this he has only need to bolt one little square and he's put it beyond question for it's quite as satisfactory as the pistol bullet and a great deal nastier in the flavour consequently the more credit in taking it one penny a square with all these virtues one penny a square
There were two buyers directly, and more of the listeners plainly hesitated. The vendor, observing this, increased in loquacity. It's all brought up as fast as it can be made, said the fellow. There are fourteen water mills, six steam engines, and a galvanic battery always are working upon it. They can't make it fast enough, but the men work so hard that they die off, and the widows is pensioned directly with a twenty pound a year for each of the children, and a premium of fifty for twins. One penny a square, two and a half pence is all the same, and four farthings is received with joy. One penny a square, wine stains, fruit stains, beer stains, water stains, paint stains, pitch stains, mud stains, blood stains. Here's a stain upon the hat of a gentleman in a company, and I'll take it clean out before he can order me a pint of ale. Ha! Huh, cried Sykes, starting up. Give that back. I'll take it clean out, sir, replied the man, winking at a company, before you come across the room to get it. Gentlemen, all observe the dark stain upon this gentleman's hat. No wider than a shilling, but thicker than a half crown. Whether it's a wine stain, fruit stain, beer stain, water stain, paint stain, pitch stain, mud stain, or blood stain. The man got no further, for Sykes, with a hideous imprecation, overthrew the table, tearing the hat from him, burst out of the house. With the same perversity of feeling and irresolution that had fastened upon him, despite himself all day, the murderer, finding that he was not followed, and that they most probably considered him some drunken, sullen fellow, turned back up the town, and getting out of the glare of the lamps of a stagecoach that was standing in the street, was walking past when he recognised the mail from London, and saw that it was standing at the little post-office. He almost knew what was to come, but he crossed over and listened. The guard was standing at the door waiting for the letter-bag. Will you damn me of that bag? It weren't ready the night before last. This won't do, you know. Anything new up in town, Ben? asked the gamekeeper, drawing back to the window shutters, the better to admire the horses. No, nothing that I knows on, replied the man, pulling on his gloves. Corn's up a little. I heard talk of murder, too, down Spitalfield's way. I don't reckon much upon it. Oh, that's quite true, said a gentleman inside, who was looking out of the window. And a dreadful murder it was. Was it, sir? rejoined the guard, touching his hat. Man or woman, pray, sir? A woman, replied the gentleman. It is supposed. Now, Ben, replied the coachman impatiently. Damn here, that bag, said the guard. Are you got to sleep in there? Coming, cried the office keeper, running out. Coming, growled the guard. And so's the young woman of property that's going to take a fancy to me, but I don't know when. Here, give it a hold. All right. The horn sounded a few cheerful notes, and the coach was gone. Sykes remained standing in the street, apparently unmoved by what he had just heard, and agitated by no stronger feeling than a doubt where to go. At length he went back again and took the road which leads from Hatfield to St Albans. He went on doggedly, but as he left the town behind him, and plunged into the solitude and darkness of the road, he felt a dread and awe creeping upon him, which shook him to the core. Every object before him, substance or shadow still or moving took the semblance of some fearful thing these fears were nothing compared to the senses that haunted him of that morning's ghastly figure following at his heels he could trace its shadow in the gloom supply the smallest item of the outline and note how stiff and solemn it seemed to stalk along he could hear its garments rustling in the leaves and every breath of wind came laden with that last low cry 
If he stopped, it did the same. If he ran, it followed. Not running too, that would have been a relief, but like a corpse endowed with a mere machinery of life, and borne on one slow, melancholy wind that never rose or fell. At times he turned with desperate determination, resolved to beat his phantom off. Though it should look him dead, but the hair rose on his head, and his blood stood still, for it had turned with him and was behind him then. He had kept it before him that morning, but it was behind now, always. He leaned his back against the bank and felt that if it stood above him, visibly out against the cold night sky, he threw himself upon the road, on his back upon the road. At his head it stood, silent, erect and still, a living gravestone with its epitaph in blood. Let no man talk of murderers escaping justice, and hint that providence must sleep. There were twenty score of violent deaths in one long minute of that agony of fear. There was a shed in the field he passed that offered shelter for the night. Before the door were three tall poplar trees, which made it very dark within, and the wind moaned through them with a dismal wail. He could not walk on till daylight came again, and here he stretched himself close to the wall, to undergo new torture. For now a vision came before him, as constant and more terrible than that from which he had escaped, those widely staring eyes so lustreless and glassy, that he had better borne to see them than think upon them, peered in the midst of darkness, light in themselves but giving light to nothing. There were but two, but they were everywhere. If he shut out the sight, there came the room with every well-known object, some indeed that he would have forgotten if he had gone over its contents from memory each in its accustomed place the body was in its place and its eyes were as he saw them when he stole away he got up and rushed into the field without the figure was behind him he re-entered the shed and he shrunk down once more the eyes were there before he had laid himself along and here he remained in such terror as none but he can know trembling in every limb and the cold sweat starting from every pore when suddenly there rose upon the night wind a noise of distant shouting and the roar of voices mingled in alarm and wonder any sound of men in that lonely place even though it conveyed a real cause of alarm was something to him he regained his strength and energy at the prospect of personal danger and springing to his feet rushed into the open air the broad sky seemed on fire, rising into the air with showers of sparks and rolling one above the other with sheets of flame, lighting the atmosphere for miles around, and driving clouds of smoke in the direction where he stood. The shouts grew louder as the new voices swelled the roar, and he could hear the cry of fire mingled with the ringing of an alarm bell. The fall of heavy bodies and the crackling of flames as they twined round some new obstacle and shot aloft as though refreshed by food. The noise increased as he looked. There were people there, men and women, light bustle. It was like new life to him. He darted forward, straight headlong, dashing through briar and brake, and leaping gate and fence as madly as his dog, who careered with a loud and sounding bark before him. He came upon the spot. There were half-dressed figures tearing to and fro, some endeavouring to drag the frightened horses from the stables, others driving the cattle from the yard and outhouses, and others coming laden from the burning pile amidst a shower of falling sparks, 
and the tumbling down of red-hot beams the apertures where the doors and windows stood an hour ago disclosed a mass of raging fire walls rocked and crumbled into the burning well the molten lead and iron poured down white-hot upon the ground women and children shrieked the men encouraged each other with noisy shouts and cheers the clanking of the engine pumps the spurting and hissing of the water as it fell upon the blazing wood added to the tremendous roar he shouted too till he was hoarse and flying from memory himself plunged into the thickest of the throng hither and thither he dived that night now working at the pump now hurrying through the smoke and flame but never ceasing to engage himself wherever noise and men were thickest up and down the ladders upon the roofs of buildings over floors that quaked and trembled with his weight under the lee of falling bricks and stones and every part of that great fire was he but he bore a charmed life and had neither scratch nor bruise nor weariness nor thought till morning dawned again and only smoke and black ruins remained this mad excitement over there returned with tenfold force the dreadful consciousness of his crime he looked suspiciously about him while the men were conversing in groups and he feared to be the subject of their talk the dog obeyed the significant beck of his finger and they drew off stealthily together he passed near an engine where some men were seated and they called him to share in their refreshment he took some bread and meat and drank a draught of beer heard the firemen who were from london talking about the murder he's gone to birmingham they say said one but they'll have him yet for the scouts are out and by tomorrow night there'll be a cry all through the country he hurried off and walked till he had almost dropped upon the ground then lay down in a lane and had a long but broken and uneasy sleep he wandered on again irresolute and undecided and oppressed with the fear of another solitary night suddenly he took the desperate resolution of going back to london there's somebody to speak to there at all events he thought good hiding place too i never expect a nabby there after this country sent why can't i lie by for a week or so and forcing blunt from fagan get abroad to france damn me i'll risk it he acted upon this impulse without delay and choosing the least frequented roads began his journey back resolved to lie concealed within a short distance of the metropolis and entering it at dusk by a circuitous route to proceed straight to that part of it which he had fixed on for his destination the dog though if any description of him were out it would not be forgotten that the dog was missing and had probably gone with him this might lead to his apprehension as he passed along the streets he resolved to drown him and walked on looking about for a pond picking up a heavy stone and tying it to his kerchief as he went the animal looked up into his master's face while these preparations were making whether his instinct apprehended something of their purpose or the robber's sidelong look at him was sterner than ordinary he skulked a little further in the rear than usual and cowered as he came more slowly along when his master halted at the brink of a pool and looked round to call him he stopped outright dear me call come here cried sykes the animal came up from the very force of habit but as sykes stooped to attach the handkerchief to his throat he uttered a low growl and started back come back said the robber the dog wagged his tail but moved not sykes made a running noose and called him again the dog advanced retreated paused an instant and scarred away at his hardest speed 
the man whistled again and again and sat down and waited in the expectation that he would return but no dog appeared and at length he resumed his journey end of chapter 48